Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 200 of the iFreak Show. Today in our show, we have Erica Sadoon. Hey there. Guy Rambo. Hello. Andrew Madsen. Hello. I'm finally back in Salt Lake City. Yeah, Andrew, you, uh, where were you? You missed a couple episodes. I was in Tokyo for the Tri-Swift Conference. For a couple Very months. cool. Yeah. So normally when we have a big episode, like 200... We'll go talk about a little bit about the beginning of the show and bring some old panelists on. But today we thought we'd go even farther back, way back, not to the four years when this this show started, but even back farther, maybe the 90s, even the 80s. We're going to talk a little bit about Next Step. And what, what exactly is Next Step? We talk about it a lot, but not everyone knows what it is. You know, I had the experience last night. I went to a, a developer meetup here um, for mobile developers, and I hit into somebody that I that I'm acquainted with. I wouldn't say I know him really well, but I, I know who he is, and he's a really cool guy. And he he actually teaches. Um, he's he's put together some online courses for iOS, among other things, and and he he really knows his stuff. And I started talking to to him about um, some of the old computers I have, and mentioned that I had a Next Cube, and he did not know anything about he didn't seem to know anything about next or even what i was talking about until i sort of oh you know the company steve jobs started after he left apple and oh yeah okay i've heard of that but it kind of surprised me that somebody who makes his living uh with ios development didn't know what next step was so hopefully with this episode we can you know kind of increase understanding of the history that we're all uh that we're all um building upon so how did Next Step get started? Well, uh... Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two-day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development, we have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. Well, uh, Steve Jobs in 1985 was essentially pushed out of Apple by the board of directors. Um, over, you know, I don't know, various things. He, I don't think he was super easy to get along with. Um, but anyway, I think he pretty much, his last day was a Friday, and, and by Monday the next week, he had incorporated a new company called Next. And it was a new computer company called Next. And uh, they shipped their first, I mean, leaving, leaving out a lot of the next three years, they shipped their first hardware in 1988. It was called the Next Computer. Um, but later sort of got renamed the next cube because the computer itself is a cube. Anyway, that computer ran an operating system called Next Step. And uh, so the first version of Next Step was released in 1988. It was actually version 0.8, not version 1.0. And it's a Unix. It was a, uh, a, a Unix OS. The machine was meant to be sort of a Unix workstation um, with some really innovative features around development, which I think we'll get into as the episode goes on, but it, it was Unix built on top of the mock kernel, um, which 
was I think I think sort of built at CMU Carnegie Mellon if I remember right um, and uh, the guy people who worked on mock at, at CMU ended up at next and um, sort of made that the basis of the OS but I think the really important thing that the reason that we all care so much is that uh, they came up with this development environment that used objective C which at the time was a pretty new language I don't know three years old or something and was a little obscure I think I mean it was it was out there it was a, an example of object-oriented programming but object-oriented programming was still not exactly mainstream so what was the, the purpose of next step I really think next was targeting the education market um, in large part, uh, I, I think they sort of didn't do as well as they wanted to in that market because the the cube was I don't know like I think the base configuration was seventy five hundred dollars and I think the kind of thing you actually want to buy and use was closer to ten thousand and you know that was in nineteen eighty eight dollars so that's probably more like twenty thousand today which is pretty darn expensive for a, a personal computer even if it is a you know pretty powerful Unix workstation and so I don't think they actually made huge inroads in in education but where they did make inroads was in companies that wanted to be able to develop applications really quickly and uh, I think there were a number of government agencies and some big financial institutions and things like that that really saw a lot of value in being able to quickly develop an application and at the time compared to the other you know programming languages and development environments that were out there the next step development environment, which again was Objective C and you know Interface Builder and an App Kit and actually a lot of the same frameworks and tools that are still around in one form or another, was a much more efficient, fast way to put stuff together, and not only to put stuff together, but actually to write robust, serious applications. Now, when you're talking about an application nowadays, we're thinking like, oh, a website or maybe an iOS app or iPad app. What, what would an application be uh, for Next Step? Who would run that? Well, at first, <clears throat> they were apps for the for the Next operating system, which was a desktop operating system that wouldn't look so unfamiliar to a, to a modern Mac OS X user. Um, had a graphical user interface and windows and menus and, and buttons and all of that. Uh, so, you know, there were, I think there were a lot of scientific computing applications that came out for it. Um, a lot of companies were building internal tools, but they were, you know, not not too different than a than a modern Mac app. And in fact, some of the some so there are there are at least a, a couple companies that are still around that started out writing for Next Step that are now writing for the Mac and iOS. Um, Omni Group is the one that immediately comes to mind, but Omni Group started out as a company that wrote software for for Next, and then after the transition. You know, after Next was bought by Apple, they transitioned to OS X, and they're obviously still around and, and quite successful writing for OS X and, and iOS. Um, later on, I'm not exactly sure of the timeline, but later on, Next also came out with a, a system called Web Objects, which was sort of Objective C for writing for writing web apps. And I don't know as much about that as I know about the sort of native desktop stuff, though. WebObjects is primarily known for the reason that the App Store, 
or actually all of Apple stores would go down during major events. Right. So that, that leaves you with a really good impression of web objects. <laughs> web objects really had power and they were cool and so forth. But they also had limits and it's not a technology I used very much. And you you can also write web objects applications with Java, can't you? Yeah, I think that happened later though. There was this push right around the end of the, you know the, the late '90s after Apple bought Next, and we're working on incorporating uh, Next technology into the the next version of the Mac OS, which became OS X, of course. Um, where they they seem to want to get kind of move away from Objective C and and to Java, and you could write Cocoa apps for the Mac in Java, um, and that was that was actually true. Maybe up until the mid two thousands, I I, rem- I I seem to remember that still being a possibility all the way up until maybe even ten point four Tiger. But I think yeah, you you could actually write macOS apps uh, with Python and Ruby at the time. I remember late two thousands, I written some myself using ruby well that's yeah and that's still possible with with uh ruby motion and and such but that was sort of more apple supported i think the java push was a a serious push you watch old wwdc videos and they they really talk about java as a first class language for cocoa development and, and you know they had documentation just like now you can see documentation in either objective c or swift they had documentation for cocoa in java um, of course, we now know that that didn't really catch on, and I think most of us would rather write Objective-C than Java, and would certainly rather write Swift than Java, but um, there was that push, but I don't really think that was a Next thing. I think that was an Apple thing after Next. Apple's header doc standard was intended to incorporate quite a wide range of Cocoa development languages, which went from AppleScript to Java to JavaScript, to Pascal, believe it or not, Perl, Python, uh, Ruby, PHP, TCL, which I always call Tickle for some reason. Could you imagine, were, could you imagine writing a Cocoa app in PHP? But the idea was that Cocoa services all were unified under Apple, including all of these source languages, they weren't necessarily going to be used to write Cocoa applications, but they did use common technologies such as HeaderDoc. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I didn't. That's a bit of history I'd never heard before. And you know, Born Shell, um, C Source, C plus plus, all all under this broad sweeping cocoa umbrella and HeaderDoc hasn't actually been updated until now when swift introduced its new documentation standard well and it's funny because now that they updated it for swift i think it's the first time that we've that the whole idea of of developing for cocoa in more than one language has really caught on right i mean uh, java didn't if you wrote a Cocoa app in Java or used Java for Cocoa development at all, you'd be sad when they when they pretty much dropped that not too long after. 
I think, I think if you're that, writing Java apps, you're sad regardless. But anyway, I think there's a core though, a core of Objective C with bits of C, you know, and core foundation going off in one direction, and C plus plus and Objective C plus plus going off in another direction. Yeah, I suppose I suppose you're right. Um, going back to Next Step, though, I, I do think Next Step was pretty interesting because uh, the the whole OS, the development environment, and the whole OS really um, had Objective C all throughout the, mm-hmm. the DNA of, of that OS. You you would even write drivers in Objective C, which was something Apple dropped after they, you know, dropped in in OS 10. You don't write drivers for OS 10 in Objective C, but you could write device drivers in Objective C for Next Step. One of the interesting things looking at that time is that in some places you were dealing with very flat languages like C. But the Macintosh at that time was using Pascal for the most part. And the developers for Pascal had inside Mac. And these were originally binders and then they were later bound into real books of all these calls, all the APIs. And you would buy volumes of these things and they were huge and they were your documentation and developing for applications for the Macintosh throughout all the way into the 90s use these technologies that were so low level but at the same time the Macintosh was inspired by Xerox PARC and Xerox PARC had developed a series of small talk machines. Now, Objective-C was based directly on small talk. All the libraries, all the core language features, the object-oriented approach, they all drew from this small talk. And so when you went from a small talk machine to a next machine, you were using a lot of the same features, language elements, concepts, model view controller. It really was what you think of as application development today that was there in 1988. And it was there, you know, fairly early. I think the Xerox Alto goes to the late 70s or so. I don't know exactly the dates, but there was a completely different technique of application development versus Apple, which was doing this very prosaic, very tedious development with Pascal. And they had Prototyper, which was their attempt to do what on the next branch was Interface Builder. And Next development was so much more sophisticated. It was so much at a higher level of conceptual design than the status quo for the Mac that looking back through time, it 
everything there might have looked a little grayscale. It may look a little old-fashioned, but to a current Cocoa developer, if you go back and look at that development material, it will all feel extremely comfortable, all feel extremely familiar, because this is what became OS X. This is the development path that exists today. And it's only now that we're now taking steps into Swift and into new ways of developing that go beyond model view controller that we're actually seeing an end to this era. That's true. That's a good point. I mean, the next step influence on modern Mac development has been huge. I mean, it took me years to realize that NS string stood for next step, but that's been been baked into our DNA for, for a long time. Yeah, I'm actually looking at some old Next Step documentation for AppKit, which they called Application Kit at the time. And it's amazing how similar it, it is today because I'm still a Mac developer and all of the methods and the classes are very similar. And the methods and classes that are so similar, if you hopped into the Swift, not Swift, but the um, small talk of that time, everything would have looked familiar too. The distance from small talk to objective C was very small. And of course, the distance from small talk to Xerox Park was non-existent. Yeah, isn't that isn't that interesting? And I, I think um, I mean it's kind of kind of uh, why is that right? The Mac was obviously directly uh, sort of influenced by or directly almost just directly a, a consumer commercial implementation of a lot of the ideas that were that came out of Park, at least in terms of the graphical user interface. But as you said, the development the development environment was uh, very different. I, I'm going to try to find a link for the show notes to a tutorial that I found not too long ago where somebody kind of shows you how to build a pretty simple app for System 6, from for, uh, Mac System 6, which is not so different from the, the earliest systems. And it's just amazing how much you have, how much low-level stuff you have to do just to get a window on the screen and an applic- and a menu and a quit option. It's not, uh, it's not like now where you... St- create an Xcode template, an empty Xcode project from a template and hit run and you kind of get all the basics. But Next Step was like that. Um, And I guess it's because the Mac was such an underpowered machine to start out with. They really couldn't afford to do all of that stuff because it was supposed to be cheap and it only had 128K of RAM and it had a pretty slow processor. um... I would defy you in terms of categorizing it as cheap. Well, it was never cheap. It, it was, was luxury. Sure, but it was supposed to be cheap originally. The the very early plans for the Mac were that it would be cheap and then it it did not end up cheap when it shipped, but it was cheap compared to Lisa. $2500 is not cheap. And that's how that that was the max price when it first came out and that's like yeah. $5000 if you adjust for inflation now. But I think Jeff Raskin's original idea was that it would be something like $500, which in hindsight was obviously unrealistic, but it was kind of what the early team members were thinking. This will be a cheap 
consumer computer that everybody can afford. If you look at the Mac, the Mac picked up the notion of Windows menus and pointers from Xerox Park. If you look at Next, it picked up all those features, but it also added the object-oriented design, and it innovated. It innovated in a major way in terms of putting an application together. You didn't have to do a resource fork. You didn't have to look at things at a very low level. Instead, you had the notion of an interface that would communicate with callbacks to a code base. And there was just a beautiful elegance about it that was unheard of on the Mac and really way beyond what you would do on a Smalltalk system. The next system was so innovative that it really has powered OS X all the way until now. And only now is Mac OS starting to evolve into the next thing. Yeah, I think we should just we should emphasize just starting. If you look at OS Mac OS Sierra, I mean it's still running app, still using AppKit for everything. I don't think the tech has really even hit the implementation. But if you go to conferences these days, you're going to see talks about what comes next, what's after model view controller. And these are things that have been floating around for a few years, but they're really starting to gain momentum. And we're seeing modern languages, everything from Rust to, um, can you call Erlang a modern language? Well, it's only 30 years old or something. But. <laughs> yeah. but the point is, there's a new way of looking at language design. Protocol-oriented programming, the notion that object-oriented programming might not take you to where you want to go. Um, Contract-based programming, assertion-based programming. And I know Eiffel goes so far back. Eiffel is like, what, early 90s, late 80s? But a lot of those features are now becoming a lot more relevant as we move forward. Well, and at this point, it seems like, you know, object-oriented programming and all of the things that we're used to as as Cocoa developers, but even if you're not working on the Mac, even if you're, you know, a .NET developer or a Java developer on Android or something, you're, you're building on all those ideas that really started to hit the mainstream with with Next and then later, you know, other companies uh, really starting to do object-oriented development. Um, we think of those as old and, you know, that's the old way of doing things. But at the time, that was a really kind of new and uh, exciting way to do things that um, improved a lot on what came before, which was sort of just procedural, you know, C, C and Pascal and, uh, you know, earlier than that, even, even what we would call even lower level languages. Um, mm -hmm. But a lot of those old low level languages continue to resonate. Take a look at auto layout. 
auto layout is essentially a declarative programming language. It's prologue, basically, except not prologue specifically, but it has a lot of the same concepts where you describe all the rules that influence your system and then you use a solver to get the output on the screen that you're looking for. And this notion that there is, you know, one objective oriented programming to rule them all has broken down over the last few years. So looking back at Next and where object oriented programming really came to speed was right at that moment. No, that's a good point. I mean, we talk about functional languages, which have gotten a lot of bandwidth. I mean, they're based on something that, you know, Lisp. How old is Lisp? Lisp is 1957. Yeah, so a lot of these concepts that have been kicked around, like you said, for for decades, um, it's just now getting into modern practice, where before, if you're a developer, you did a lot of C, you did a lot of C++, because those are the frameworks you had to work with, and you could be work across different systems you can cross compile and you know if you're the you know, ui that, that's what you're you kind of worked with what you what you could work with what you had and but it's cool to see like these different concepts come to fruition and i wasn't really a academic programmer i was very heads down just doing what the industry had for me but it, it's cool to see these concepts uh, come to light I think one of the most exciting things that we're seeing in Swift, and it's a tiny thing, it's not like a major thing that's influencing development, but it is an emphasis on these contractual assertions, preconditions, what it takes from inside development to assure the correctness of the code and the contracts you made with external callers that ensure that the data being passed is valid. It plays a much different role in Swift than it ever did in Objective-C. Right, and that's something, you know, I mean, that's that's definitely a weakness that even all the way back to the, the early Next Step days, you could certainly identify in Objective-C. A lot of the power in Objective-C comes from the its dynamic nature and leaving so much um, of, I, I guess you'd say decision making, but leaving so much of the functionality up, up uh, until runtime, and, and that came from Smalltalk, but that does mean that the compiler is much less able to, uh, you know, tell if you've uh, s sort of make sure that you are following the contracts that you have, and um, it, it's kind of interesting to see Apple go in that direction to go from a language that's so dynamic and. Um, late, uh, how would you say it? It's kind of a uh, late bound language to strongly typed, lots of plenty of um, static checking at compile time. And plenty of compile time. And, pl and plenty of compile time. <laughs> yeah, lots of it. Well, it's I, getting better, though. It is getting better, but, but, but that's actually an interesting point because I think that's part of the problem, right? It, it, it actually takes a lot of. CPU resources to compile a language like Swift, and can you imagine trying to compile a, 
a Swift app on a 25 megahertz 68030 in, in the original Nextcube. Have you ever felt like you're falling behind? Or that the programming world is moving so fast that it's impossible to keep up? Then there's the issue of where to go to make sure you're up to date. The answer is to join a community dedicated to discussing the latest in Ruby. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you got Ruby Rogues all day? Well, you can, kind of. We moved our Ruby Rogues Parlay forum to Slack. That means you can connect with our listeners and guests on a platform you're most likely already using. Plus, we've set up a Keeping Current channel that pulls stories from across the web to help you know what people are talking about. And coming soon, we'll be holding monthly webinars and roundtable video chats to connect with experts in the community and with each other. So come join us at rubyrogues.com slash parlay. That's rubyrogues.com slash P-A-R-L-E-Y. In the original Next Cube. That would be rough. <laughs> that would be pretty I, mean, I remember like piling C++ apps in the 90s, and that was pretty rough. If you had to do a full rebuild, it's like you had to go for lunch. I can tell you that on a on a sixty eight oh thirty next cube, twenty at twenty five megahertz, which is the first, that's how fast the first next cube was. Um, mine's got sixty four megs of RAM, which is as much as you could put in it. Was probably incredibly expensive back then, so most machines had less. But uh, Project Builder, which is you know essentially Xcode, what Xcode is now, um, it actually runs really well, and it's not even. It's certainly slower to compile an app, but it's not like so crazy. You just want to tear out your hair. It's it's fine. It's pretty pleasant. The difference with Next was comparing not to today, but to what else was out there at the time. And it was revolutionary. And anybody who went on it and started developing on it, there was this click you would suddenly understand, oh, this is how I should have been developing. And then, of course, Next goes out of business. And then, then there's, what, 10 years or so before Rhapsody shows up? 10 years of going back to doing Pascal APIs. And it's just painful. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, one thing that I think is important about Next history and interesting is that they they started out as a hardware company. They they um, they they obviously had this really innovative software, and that was what drove sales of their hardware. But they they made and shipped hardware. They shipped the Next Cube, and then a couple of years later came out with the uh, Next Station, which is which was a less less radical um, industrial design, so kind of a flat. They call it pizza box computers, the slab. Um, and, and they sold those, but in 93, they discontinued their hardware and they became a software-only company. And they shipped Next Step uh, and, and later OpenStep, which was basically Next Step 4.2, probably 4.0, actually. Um, they, they shipped those for a bunch of other hardware. You know, they became more like Microsoft or something where they're... Where they're uh, the whole thing was not shipping their own hardware with their own software. It was shipping their software for a bunch of different platforms. And beyond that, they shipped um, development environment, you know, basically shipped Cocoa for at least one other operating system. And I'm not, um, I'm not 
I, I can't remember all the details of where that went, but this is even before yellow box after after the Apple thing. And uh, so the traction they got was not because their hardware was great. It's really cool looking. It's pretty nice hardware, I think, but it was because of, of how great their software was. To the degree they succeeded, that was where they succeeded. Their hardware was Tesla. Except it cost more and didn't, you know, explode and go on fire. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got two of them. They're, um, you know, they're 30 years old or whatever, and they're running fine. So they, they do a decent job building stuff, but you had to be pretty, pretty, uh, pretty well off to afford them. So what's the experience like running the next step? Are you, since it's Unix based, are you doing a lot of command line stuff? Is there a UI that we'd be familiar with? If you turned it on, you'd think you were in a grayscale version of OS 10. Yeah. Grayscale, slightly weird, but not too weird version of OS 10. A little weird because the menu is on the left by default over on the top left, but kind of along the left side instead of on the top. And the dock is on the right side by default. As God intended. <laughs> well, I have to admit that on a small screen, I put my dock on the left, but but I will allow you your opinion of, about putting it on the right. The dominant hand is the right hand for the majority of computer users. So putting the dock co-aligned for where you keep the mouse makes the most sense mechanically and in terms of search and selection. That sounds like a pick. I, I think so. Right hand docs rule. <laughs> but, uh, but Jane, back to your question. So yeah, you'll see a, a graphical user interface that is not so, not so dissimilar to OS 10 even now. Um, there is a terminal. It is a, U a Unix machine, and you can open up a terminal, and you know, just like on OS 10 now, I, I, I should say Mac OS now. Uh, there's there's a terminal, and it is a Unix machine. But um, I really don't think you have to touch that very much unless you unless you want to, or you you know, you're a terminal user. Uh, the development environment is, I think, incredibly familiar to a Mac developer. I, in fact, if you run Project Builder. <clears throat> If you run Project Builder on Next Step 3.3 um, or Open Step 4.2, and then run Project Builder on like 10. Point, Mac OS 10 10.2, which came out in 2002, I think 2002. Yeah, uh, they they look they you can still see that they are that they're the same application. Even even a lot of the um, icon images are exactly the same. And then of course Xcode kind of changed things but uh there's even a little bit of of xcode there's a little bit of project builder dna that you can still really see in xcode just in terms of superficial elements the big missing piece is that next would allow you to look at your nib and it provided a hierarchy browser and you could go look at it and you know, level to level to level, just, you know, descending through it, refer to things directly in the nib using this hierarchical browser. And it, it was such a great feature. And it's not in Xcode. And it really should be in Xcode, especially now 
that there's auto layout and it just seems wrong that this incredibly wonderful feature was removed in modern Xcode. I wonder why they got rid of that. Maybe they felt they were giving developers too much power. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, after all, you know, why show everybody all the contents of your nib when you can have a compiled version of it that, you know, you can't go in and edit anymore? Yeah, I don't think they dropped that. I don't, I, <clears throat> I remember you could still do that on Mac OS X, at least until maybe around the time Leopard came out, I think is when they... It was about then, yeah. They kind of ditched that and went to the compiled nibs and, and simultaneously switched to the zip format, which is actually easier to read if you just open it yourself. But they, they put, you know, after, if you just got an application from somebody else, you can't really do anything with the nibs in it anymore. And it used to be that you could go in and change stuff if you wanted. You could mess stuff. You could add features. It was wonderful. I wrote an entire book about how to hack your apps Oh, I didn't know that. Was that for the Mac or was that even It was from it was for the Mac and it was from O'Reilly. And I can't remember what it was called. I think it was Mac OS Secrets or something. Hold on a sec. Yeah, I'll look we it put up. Put that in the show notes. I remember you could actually write plugins for interface builder. Yeah, you could do that up until Xcode 4. Um, Xcode 4 integrated Interface Builder into into Xcode. Previously, they were separate apps, you know, that were pretty tightly integrated, but they were separate apps. And um, in, up until the Interface Builder that shipped with Xcode 3.2, you could write plugins. You could write. They were actually called palettes, and uh, you could you could basically give interface builder first class support for your own custom UI elements which was pretty cool and then in Xcode 4 they got rid of that and then in Xcode 7 or whatever it was they added the IB designables and IB inspectable which goes part of the way there because you can now render your controls in interface builder but you can't it used to be that you could could put them in the object library and so you could just drag your own controls right out of the object library and configure them using a using the exact same kind of UI that you used to configure system controls. So we're part of the way back to that, but not really quite all the way. There was a there was a pretty in, in the very late days of that, in the like 10.4, 10.5 time frame, there was a pretty popular open source UI toolkit called BW Toolkit that that worked that way. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I used it once. I think. Yeah, I used that in one app too. And then, while I was still working on that app, is when Xcode four came out, and you could still use it. I think you just couldn't use the interface builder part of it. Well, very cool. Well, what else should we talk about about next step before we get to the picks? I, I've well, got a I've got a bunch of trivia stuff, but I don't know if it's interesting. 
I bet it would I be have, interesting. I have one trivia thing. Uh, Till recently, the um, I think may, maybe Andrew had this one too. The icon for screenshots on macOS still used the old Next camera icon. I think until like Yosemite, I think it still used an old camera icon from the Next days when you you chose to take a screenshot from a window. Yeah, that's one of the ones I had. They they finally got rid of that. You're talking about the Command Shift Four. Um, and then yeah. space bar, uh, but the, but you actually still can find at least one next icon that I know of in in Sierra, and that is if you open up Grab, which is the screenshot application that is in your utilities folder, and then um, I, it's probably it, there are probably a few icons in there, but I I definitely know that the timed screen, if you choose to take a timed screenshot of the entire screen, the window that comes up that um, you know kind of tells you what's going to happen and says start timer has a picture of a camera with a timer. And that icon comes is in grab in, in next step. So somehow in the last 20 years, nobody has nobody has redesigned uh, that icon and grab itself is almost identical to, to what it is in next step. Um, another another little piece of a little design element that of course has had small changes to to the way it looks over the years is the beach ball icon the, the spinning beach ball of death um, that that's in next step I don't have my my next cubes don't have color the board that you need to get color on a next cube is still quite expensive if you can find one and I don't have one and my next monitor is also grayscale. So I don't know what the beach ball looks like in color. I'd have to look up a screenshot, but it's definitely there in black. And it was only four bits or four levels of color, two bits, yeah. right? Well, the gray, the grayscale is is four four colors of grayscale, but the color, if you get the, the next dimension board, which was the color board for the cube, it's it's pretty high high depth color. I know the next station color was lower. Uh, had a lower color depth, and I think it's forty ninety six colors. So after they shipped color, they did they did quite well. Yeah, and speaking of color, uh, there's a funny method in NS View called uh, it's actually a Boolean method called true draw color. So yeah, it's still in there. It's deprecated, but it still exists. And its documentation says it returns a Boolean value indicating whether the view is being drawn to an environment that supports color. I'm not sure why we would need that currently, but yeah, it's there. That's interesting. I had never noticed that. There's a very strong tie between Next Step's PostScript model and OS X's PDF model. And I wish I knew more about the details, but from what I understand, a lot of the core drawing operations and the drawing language really just moved over with very little change in the technology. Yeah, so they did switch from PostScript to PDF, but uh, and I don't know the details of that either. But it actually sh it it changed quite a bit between Mavericks and El Capitan. Uh, 
Yosemite was a little weird because they they have a new system to draw the controls. It's a private framework called Core UI, and internally it uses mostly PSDs, so it's Photoshop files with layers representing the different states of buttons and stuff. So yeah, they changed it a little bit. Oh, that's I was boring. thinking more about the context calls where you establish context and draw to a context yeah, more than the graphics. integration. Yeah, the core graphics. Yeah, quartz, that's that's pretty much the same. Well, just in the in the trivia category, um, I'm probably going to get these details wrong and then we'll get email from an angry listener. No kidding, kidding. I've never gotten any email from an angry listener. <laughs> um, the the prefix for AppKit classes was not NS early on in Next Step. It was actually NX, and uh, they they introduced the NS prefix in I think in Next Step 3.0. They also did not have Foundation as we know it early on. That was introduced later. I've heard that NS is not does not actually stand for next step. It stands for next slash sun because they had a deal with sun computers to ship ship oh ship open step for for sun hardware or ship um, the basically what we call Coco now it was not called Coco then but ship app kit and, and such for Solaris or something along those lines. I've forgotten the details, but I, I have never found a uh, you know, definite answer to that, but there are those who say that NS is actually next slash sun, and the earlier NX prefix was for next, for next, you know, from from the N and the X and next. Another, yeah, and, and you can still find some stuff with NX. Uh, I think there's NX size and NX point. They never removed it. I don't know why, but. They're still in there. I've seen NX prefixes in private stuff in stack traces before. So there's some of that still lurking down in the system. Yeah. You've inspired me to go look at some next code. And sure enough, there are things like NX underscore left aligned. Yeah. So another I haven't looked at this for years. Another one that I think is kind of interesting that is still actually completely allowed that I think a lot of Objective-C developers don't realize is that the return type for a method is actually optional. You don't have to specify a return type for a method, and if you don't specify a return type, it is assumed that the return type is id, you know, meaning any an instance of any class. Uh, and actually, if you look at a lot of next-era code, that's that's the norm. A lot of that code omits the return type for for methods, and it was much more common for methods to return an id instead of explicitly returning specific type. And uh, you see, I've never once in my entire development background called it an id. I 
I, yeah, I call it an id, and I don't know why I call it an id. Something like id, ego, and superego, but it should actually be called an id because if you read the yeah, I always thought it was id. Yeah, if you read the if you read the book by Brad Cox about Objective C, and he's he's the creator of the language. He he actually says that id is short, sorry id that id is short for identifier, and he talks about that in terms of sort of this abstract concept. We we know of course that it's a pointer, but sort of this abstract idea that it's just a number that is a unique identifier for that object. So that that's actually where that ID came from. But I, I have heard other people call it id, and somewhere I picked that up, and I should probably break the habit. Are you trying to figure out how to stay current with Ruby and Rails? I'm putting on a two-day online conference called Ruby Remote Conf. You can check it out at rubyremoteconf.com. Like I said, it's a two-day conference where you can come and listen to speakers and experts from all around the world talk to you about issues pertaining to Ruby and web development. We have an online Slack channel, a roundtable discussion on Zoom, and all of the talks are given over Google Hangouts, and all of the talks will be streamed to you live. Come check us out at rubyremoteconf.com. But now we know. Well, we went over a lot of cool stuff. We should probably get to the picks. We're running low on time. Yeah, I have uh, more, but, but I'm going to write a blog oh, more? post. Well, well, no, I'm going to write a blog post about it. All right. One of these Coming books. soon, Andrew Madsen's blog post with next trivia. Uh, Guy, what do you have for us? Today I have only one pick. It's an Xcode extension called Xgist. It's used to create gists from right from within Xcode. Really cool, really useful. You just select a piece of code and you choose to create a gist from your selection and it uploads it to gist, gives you the URL on your clipboard. So if you're sharing codes with people, writing articles, that's really useful. Xgist. Uh, very cool. Okay, I haven't used that. I've used the gist functionality in GitHub quite a bit, but not the xgist. So, no, it cool. sounds um, neat. Yeah, I didn't know about uh, that either. Andrew, do you have any picks? Yeah, I'll keep my picks on topic this episode. Um, my first pick is uh, an emulator that I. I can't remember if I mentioned mentioned it during the show or when we were talking earlier, but there's actually a, a, a Next Cube or it can emulate both the Next Cube and Next Station. There's an emulator called Previous, which is a fun play on words. Um, and so, if you want to try Next Step and you don't want to try to track down a, a Next computer, which are somewhat hard to find and quite expensive, in good shape, uh, download Previous and you can run run these operating systems, these old operating systems in an emulator. I've used this uh, to run Next Step 2.0 pretty recently and it worked quite well. It was um, it's, it's pretty impressive and of course you can find downloads of those old operating systems if you just look around a little bit. So that's my first pick. My second pick is um, a bit of trivia but there's a payoff. Uh, the first the first web browser was developed on a Next Cube by Tim Berners-Lee. I mean, essentially, the World Wide Web was invented on a Next Cube, and the source code for that web browser, which was called World Wide Web, 
is available free. I, I don't. I think he or CERN. He was at CERN when he worked on that. They released it sort of into the public domain. But the fun thing is that that very first web browser is a, a, an Objective C Next Step application. So you can look through the source code of the world's first web browser, and you can also see what it was like to to write a Next App in Objective C back then. Those are my picks. How would you do that with no HTML library? It blows my mind. Yeah. Also includes HTML parsing. That's how. Okay. Or I don't even know if it was called HTML yet, but but the whole idea of hypertext and, and linking was definitely there. Very cool. Erica, do you have any picks? I do have some picks, but they're going to involve quite a lot of work from the user. All right. So, so there's going to be homework. There's going to be homework. The first one is way back with the iPad 1. Stephen Troughton Smith put out an emulator system that allowed you to run operating systems like Windows 1 on your iPad. And I remember at some point, and I'm going back to 2007 at this point, maybe 2008, but that you could run Next Step, early versions of Next Step and Open Step on it. So my first pick is there's a thing that you sort of can find, but you're going to have to do your own legwork. It was from Stephen Troughton Smith, and I know for sure that um, OpenStep was one of the uh, systems that was successfully installed on an iPad and running on an iPad one of all things. When you can compare that to the Pro today, the, the performance was not ideal. The second pick is if you can get onto the net and do some really deep searching. There was a newsletter I worked on called Buzznug Buzzings. And I know the name is horrible, but we actually picked the name to be horrible. Buzz, if you don't know, is Georgia Tech's mascot. And Buzznug was the, the Buzz Next Users Group. And the name of the Buzz Next User Group's newsletter was Buzznug Buzzings. And if you can search around, you can see what people were doing at the time the projects that were ongoing, there's some marvelous stuff from people who were really exploring this area just as it was brand, brand, brand new. And it's probably worth going there. If you have an interest of where, where did we come from? How did we get to where OS 10 Mac OS is today? you see the roots of it in those write-ups. And finally, because I always have this seem to have a pick that has nothing to do with technology, my pick is the prize winner of Defiance, Ohio. It's available on iTunes for a 99-cent rental and probably will be by the time that the show goes live. And 
it is just a sweet feel good kind of movie and it's worth a 99 cent rental very cool well i'll have to check that out so thanks everyone for teaching me about next tip i didn't know that much about it so i'm glad andrew and erica were able to fill us in so that's all the time we have today for for the ifreaks um we'll see you all next week thanks guys Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.